Good afternoon, brethren. Very, very glad to see so many of you here. As Mr. Ames said, if we count the shut-ins and people that call in, why, we would have over 400. So I think they have the 400 Club, don't they, somewhere in New York, but that's what we are today. Anyway, it's really good to have this. I understand it's going very well, and a lot of the activities are going well, and uh, we're very grateful for that and that so many of you have come in. As Mr. Ames said, we're grateful to have Mr. Seselk. I didn't see him at first, but he's here now, and Mr. John Strain, and we've been able to talk to Mr. Strain the last couple of days. I hope all of you in Florida will get acquainted with him. He's been in the ministry over years and graduate of Ambassador College, and we're very glad to have him with us in the ministry in Florida now. Welcome to all of our guests, to all of you who've come way in and we do appreciate that, and I'm sure it's going to add a great deal to this occasion. I do want to thank the choir and Mr. Ruddleston for the fine special music, and it went very, very well. We do thank Almighty God, our Father, for this special occasion. As many of you know, this is the 19th anniversary. This week will be the 19th anniversary of the Global Living Church of God work. And we're so grateful we've had the degree of unity and love and spiritual growth. And now we're up over 9,000 people finally. We started with 19 people in my living room on December 26th. This is just the 24th, but it was December 26th, 19 years ago. And we are grateful for that growth that God has given. And because these prophetic events are going to speed up and we see that, Undoubtedly, many more are being shaken by these events, and they will begin to come with us more and more as the work grows and as the end of this age comes to a conclusion. We already see that. The growth has begun to speed up the last couple of years, and it's going to gain a momentum, I feel, because of what we're doing and, of course, because of what God will do in intervening in human affairs and because of his power and his blessing as well. We're grateful that Christ has used us thus far, and we want to be sure that we go on faithfully during the next 19 years. We will be tried and tested in many, many ways. You all know that. And this is a happy occasion, and I want it to continue that way, but it's good that we do take it seriously. And as my son Jim pointed out, we re I had no idea what he was going to say. I, I, I hoped he wouldn't keep on with those crazy jokes he started out with. You know, that was shocking. And uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But anyway, he has the kind of jokes that young people enjoy. Now, Mr. League, he has the, he's the greatest joke teller in the whole church, though. I've never known anyone. Mr. Carl McNair has a, had a wonderful uh, trove, treasure trove of jokes. But Mr. League, even more so, I've never seen him run out of jokes, even at our ministerial lunch around my table every Tuesday or Wednesday. We have a group of us, and he'll nearly always tell us one or two jokes, and most of them we've never heard before. He must have a great, huge encyclopedia of jokes, and I don't know where he keeps it. I don't know if he has a room big enough to keep all those in, but does he have a great big room full of jokes, Mrs. League? I don't know where. Yes, he does. Okay. <laughs> she, she probably, they have a secret room somewhere, and he won't tell us where that is. But anyway, I really enjoy the humor he has, and he has a way of telling the jokes, too, uh, more than many of us, and that makes uh, life enjoyable to have someone like that around. 
But we do have a serious purpose and we do want to keep going another 19 years or maybe it will be only 8 or 10 or 12 years till the tribulation. We hope it'll be that soon until the end of this work occurs. And we want to do everything we have to build that commitment that Jim talked about because that's so important and commit ourselves to the most important thing there is. God has blessed us and used us these 19 years. And I wanted to start out also by mentioning some of our heroes in the church as I was starting to prepare the sermon last night. And again this morning, I thought of a number of people I would love to have with us. And we do not have them with us. I can't name all the heroes in the church because we have dozens and scores of leading men and women who are in the ministry, deacons, and who are deaconesses and other leading men and women that have no title but have helped so much. But I think especially of the recent one, Mr. D. Barapartian, who was here just a couple of years ago and was helping and serving all his life. And he was my longtime friend. He and I were friends for about 55 years, or at least I knew him since 1955. I'd have to add that up, how many years that would have been. goes way, way back. And so we can think about his whole, you know, most of his adult life, at least, he was serving faithfully. We think about Mr. Carl McNair and how he hung on and how he served all over the United States. He trained many ministers who are still ministers, even in other churches as well as ours, other Church of God groups. But even those fellows look back and know that Carl McNair was faithful, and they all know that. And he worked so long and so faithfully with us, and we give God thanks for that. And he's left us a special legacy, in his case, of two of his fine sons, Rod McNair, who is with us, and Mr. Jonathan McNair, up in the New York area, pastoring the whole Northeast, as well as, of course, his wonderful wife, Dorothy, who has nothing to do since she has 20, get it, 20 grandchildren. So <laughs> there's a lot of, lot of legacy there, and that's a wonderful thing as well. And we certainly think then of Mr. John O'Gwen, because John O'Gwen was such a tremendous servant to give, to help, to accomplish, to write the correspondence course, and to serve all over. I said he was the pastor over the entire Confederacy. Uh, it sort of worked out. He was over most of the South. I was kidding about the Confederacy part, but that was what he did. And he wrote much of the Bible study course even in the car. And his wife is here with us and still helping and serving right where I work, along with my secretary, Monica, why Mrs. Jeannie O'Gwen is there helping and serving as well. Many, many others have served and helped and given of themselves in the work, and we're very grateful for every one of them. And we do want to go on and realize that we have a legacy in the church of those men and women who served in that way, and we want to be sure that we live up to that and are worthy of what they did in helping build this church and this work as well. With all my heart, I wish they were all here, and I'm sure that many of you do as well. So I said I can't name them all. I'd like to, but I better not try. Then I'll leave someone out except some of these more outstanding three evangelists and, and uh, then other people might they'll think, why did you leave this, this one out? So I have to leave out dozens of others who have gone on. And many of our heroes are still alive, of course, and are right here helping and serving right now. Our Father knows what is best. And brethren, we're going to be tried and tested in the years just ahead as never before. 
And I think most of you know that. I just wanted to focus on that somewhat today because a lot of us take things for granted. And as I said last year on this occasion, the demons give a wrong twist on things, but they often know things that are happening are going to happen. And they have said more recently that there's going to be some big stuff happen in the year 2012. I think a lot of you sense that. It's like a series or like we're the Titanic or like the America is the Titanic. And a whole bunch of icebergs are headed out our way. Iran is very, very close to developing an atomic bomb. And right now, finally, the American government has officially acknowledged that. Some of you read that in the newspapers and over the Internet just the last few days. And they're getting ready, apparently, to attack before they are attacked. And they're not going to shrink from that if they have to. That's becoming more common knowledge just in the last few days than ever before. Another horrifying Middle East war, which will cause a whole series of events following on that. We know that beside that, the United States of Europe is going to form because now they're going down and they're going to have to completely restructure, which has been more of just an economic union over there, and it's going to be done in a different way. They're terribly upset in Europe, hundreds of millions of them, about the behavior of the Muslims there and how they've pushed people aside in some of the major cities. There's going to be a reaction to that. And somehow then the Muslims will react to that reaction and they will provoke, that is, the European power, the king of the south, and bring about a major war on in that way as well. That's coming much, much closer as you can see these events underway. You also see the events that they're getting closer now to having disease epidemics. They're talking about some of you read this bird flu and now they're afraid it's going to spread. They've made it doubly dangerous And they're afraid it's going to get out. And so we're having things like that that are underway, that are being talked about openly in the news. And we know also the United States is fractured, and we're getting ready in this nation right now, and we'll have it right in this city later this coming year. By next September, we'll probably have riots and problems of all sorts right here because of the Democratic Convention. And everything certainly indicates that. People are really upset. They're losing their jobs by the millions. They're having to do without food. We're reading all the time. My wife was showing me the other day something in the paper about this family in Florida, which is virtually starving, just a normal family. The man lost his job and the wife lost her job. And I read things like that all the time. She was showing me also this morning a picture in our local newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, of two queer women, two lesbians, kissing each other. And they are members, apparently, of the armed forces. And they've said it's just fine for men to marry men and women to marry women, apparently. And this is increasing. When that increases, you know that the end is getting very, very close. Almighty God is not going to put up with this that many more years. He really isn't, brethren. So we do want to have fun, and I'll be here tonight. My wife will, unless we get too tired or something. We're getting older, and my wife has had a lot of health problems just recently, as some of you have as well. We're not young anymore. But our God is not pleased with what's going on, and He is going to intervene, and He's going to shake this nation, and it has never been shaken. And it is good that we really understand that. We are part of the final effort. 
we are part of the final crusade to warn this nation, our beloved United States of America, and to warn this world, and especially the descendants of the ten-tribed house of Israel, the American and British-descended peoples, and the peace-loving democratic peoples of northwestern Europe, that something awful is going to happen called the Great Tribulation unless we repent and get back to the God of the Bible. Not any God, but the God of the Bible in a way we have not done. And so these things are really speeding up and we have to realize that our God is real. We're not just playing games. These things are changing world events. And these things that we've talked about for generations now because I go back in the work 62 years. I was baptized 62 years ago uh, last week or earlier this week. This is still Saturday. So I've been around a little while, and I've seen a lot of things happen during that period of time. And things are getting much, much closer in so many ways, as a lot of you know. Right now, Every indication is there's only two Seagates left. When I was over in Britain with Mr. Armstrong in 1954, I heard him preaching in up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and over in Glasgow and Scotland, and down in Manchester, and down in London, England. He said, if you British people don't turn around and get back to the Bible, God will take away your empire. You won't have an empire. He said that. I heard him say that a number of times. That was way back in 1954. I heard him also say back then, and I want you young people to listen. He said again over and over through the years, if Britain and America don't turn back to God, the real God, he will take away our sea gates. And now you sense that both the Falkland Islands belonging to Britain and Gibraltar, which has been under the control of Britain as well, the Strait of Gibraltar, all the sea gates are gone that God gave us, except those two. We've lost the Panama Canal. We've lost the Bab el Mandeb. We've lost the Strait of Malacca. We've lost the Panama Canal. We've lost control around uh, South Africa, the uh, Simonston's base that guarded that, and all these other gates. We used to control the Strait of Hormuz, too. Britain did from both sides. It's gone. That's another thing the papers are saying over and over, that if we provoke Iran, they say they're going to sink ships right across that strait through which 70% of the Middle East oil passes, and the oil supply is going to go down, and the oil price is going to shoot way up. We don't know which day these things are going to happen. A whole bunch of icebergs, so to speak, are getting closer and closer to hitting battleship America. We don't know which day it could occur. We could go home and on the evening news here that Israel has preemptively struck Iran to protect themselves. And I don't blame them. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was interviewed on the King show. Larry, no, it wasn't King. It was our uh, Ben, Ben, uh, Glenn Beck show. My wife and I heard him a year or so ago. And he was saying, it's not an option with us. You Americans are way off. It's just something off in the Middle East. He said to us, it's our survival. They're right next door to us, and they have proclaimed they are going to wipe us out. We can't just say, well, there's nothing we can do. We've got to do it, or we won't exist anymore. He was very plain about that. And he is now. He wasn't yet then, but he's now the prime minister of Israel. When we heard him say that, maybe that was two years ago. 
But brethren, these things are speeding up. God is letting bad things happen, and we're sorry about that, but God works all things out for good in the end. Just thinking about those who passed on, think about this and what we've got to understand as more things happen, more of our brethren may die before the very end. God says back in Isaiah 57, Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1, he said, The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from the face of evil. And in the margin they show that's what the Hebrew is. The face of evil. We're going into the very face of evil in the next few years in a way the modern world has never experienced. When I was going to junior high school dances and high school dances and parties back in the 1940s, kids my age were being tortured. They were having their skin ripped off. They were being beaten to death. They were being gassed to death over in Germany, especially Jewish, but also literally tens and hundreds of thousands of young people and older people who were Polish or Czechoslovak, or French, or all kinds of things. Kids my age were having that happen. I didn't realize how bad it was, but it was happening right then. And it's going to be happening much worse in the next few years, and God tells us that. So the face of evil is just ahead of us. And we want to get motivated as a church and inspired to warn our people in a crusade while we have the opportunity And we can have the power of God if we give ourselves totally to God. And I hope that we will think about that and want to do that. So I hope that we all will try to do that. I hope that you young people will think about it too. As Jim was pointing out, get a goal. And your ultimate goal should be the kingdom of God. To fulfill the purpose for which God has given you life and breath. And drive yourself toward that goal. Don't let anything get in the way. There's nothing more important than that. And as these things unfold and you realize the whole world around you is being changed, the world your grandparents and great-grandparents knew even does not exist today. And it's certainly going to change far more in the next five to ten years. I didn't say 40 or 60 years. I mean five to ten years. It's changing rapidly. So we need to prepare to get through this by total commitment. Let's turn, if you would, to First Peter now. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you would, in your New Testament. And let's begin in 1 Peter chapter 4. And beginning, as you would here, in verse 14. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. I'm sorry. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. You see, God tries us. God tests us. God has tested me many, many times, as I've told you in my life. For I was threatened with my job. I was sent into exile. I was tried to be put down even by those in the work. And certainly on baptizing tours, we were in physical danger at times, as I'll tell you about a little bit later. Some of you have heard that. Don't be upset as though some strange thing happened to you. It's not strange. It has happened. It will happen. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And as we are shaken by events, brethren, let's use that for good. That can drive us to our knees 
more profoundly, more heartfeltly than just floating along with the good times. So rejoice that you have that come on you that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you reproached for the name of Christ, if people begin to pick on you or persecute you, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as an evildoer or murderer or a busybody in other people's matters. Don't be a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed if you really suffer for the name of Christ, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment. Brethren, God is testing me every day of my life. He is testing you, all of you, every day of your lives. I think you all realize that, but it's good to think about it. He works with us. He guides us. He fashions and molds us. That God who gives us life and breath, He gives us the sun and moon and stars. He gives us the seasons of the year. He gives us the sunshine and the rain. He gives us the food and the clothing that we have. He gives us every breath of air that we breathe. He has made us in His image to become someday His full, real sons. As He can reproduce Himself by filling us with the Holy Spirit but he cannot afford to reproduce or to cause other Satans to come forward. He can't do that. He did have Satan as a powerful, glorious, beautiful being who turned against him. He's not going to allow that to happen. So he tests us. He wants to be sure that we are totally committed, that we are totally surrendered, and that we are totally conquered. I want to ask you today... I pick up some of my theme, my son's theme. I didn't know he would use a similar one to mine. Are you a committed Christian or are you committed? But my title was, Are You a Conquered Christian? Are you a conquered Christian? Mr. Armstrong asked us that in the headquarters church in Pasadena quite a number of times years ago. And I think that's a very good way to put it. You know, there are church goers and some people are nice. I knew them then. And I would sometimes tell my wife, well, honey, I, I, I didn't tell others, frankly, virtually, virtually never. And I mean that. I was good and smart in that way. I'm very talkative, but I would only tell my wife, well, I have been really seeing this, being working with people, and I'm sure this person sometimes another evangelist. Top men in the work I had to work with and got to know very well. Hey, honey, I don't think they're converted at all. And, sir, I was right about 99% of the time. I mean that, too. I could just see that. We have people in the work today that are not converted. We have people in the church that are not converted. The percentage is not near as much as it used to be, by the way. I don't know of any of our ministers that are not converted. I'm not talking about that. And we may have some. I don't know every single local elder all over the face of the earth. And all our ministers make mistakes. I make mistakes. Mr. Ames makes mistakes. Dr. Winnell makes mistakes. All of us make mistakes. But that doesn't mean we're not converted. But are we really converted? Or are we conquered Christians? Have we been dealt with to so we are totally committed? We have been conquered by God to where overall 
our batting average ought to be about 80 or 95 percent. We are going to do what God says no matter what. Once we're sure that is God's will, we are conquered to have the genuine fear of God and want to do what he says every time. That's the important thing. He says judgment is to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, the righteous one is scarcely saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. We've all commit ourselves to God as to a faithful creator. He is faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is, takes away even those who've died. Some of our heroes in the church have gone on ahead of us. He hasn't thrown them away. They are going to be rewarded, those men and many other fine men in the ministry and in the work and so on, many who are not ordained because they were willing to give their lives to God, men and women all through the church. They have been taken away from some of the most evil, horrifying events that have ever happened in history. Perhaps they could have taken it just as well as we, but at least they've been spared that. They have their reward. They have it made. I don't have it made yet. I don't. You don't have it made yet. Until we breathe our last breath, God will continue to work with us to rebuke and chasten every son he loves and to knock the rough edges off of us and to make sure that we are truly a conquered Christian, that we have no more arguments left. Well, yes, but type of attitude. You need to keep the Sabbath. Well, yes, but I have a job and I might lose my job. Well, you need to do this. Well, I can't do that and I can't do that. No, we don't have any more of that stuff in our attitude if we are truly conquered as a Christian, a conquered Christian. So we've got to be sure that we really understand that judgment is beginning with us at the house of God and how much more here at the very time of the end. We're all being tested. Our human nature pulls us down. Our selfishness, we want what we want and the way we want it and how we want it. We in America are perhaps the most spoiled people on the face of the earth. Many other peoples around the world see that. When American tourists go over, they have all this money and they have everything. And the Europeans, and especially people in the third world countries, live in smaller houses, maybe having no floor, but just dirt on the floor. And I've been to some of those houses, and sometimes the woman will clean it. It's very clean. It's packed earth, but she sweeps it. She tries to do the best she can. But they have a tin roof and no concrete or rugs or anything else on the floor. We take those things for granted. We take all of our cold and hot water and electricity and everything else for granted. And increasingly, even here, we're not necessarily going to have to take all those things for granted as God brings us down and humbles us. He has allowed us to have leaders over us who are bringing us down more rapidly than many of you may realize. And I think the fat's going to hit the fan more this coming year than it ever has in modern times. And people are going to say, enough! And people are going to get upset and start to riot and all this kind of things right here in the United States of America. But we're going to be tested, brethren, through our human nature. 
wanting what we want and when we want it and how we want it. We're going to be tested by the world and the distractions and wanting things in the world and physical possessions and all that. And we're going to be tested, of course, by Satan the devil. He's going to come after us. He's looking down right now and he says, well, this living church of God has been there for 19 years and their work is getting bigger and their programs are getting stronger and they've had all this unity. I'm going to destroy that unity. He thinks that way. He's going to try to do that. He'll try to intervene and distract us and upset us and get us fighting one another in any way he can. Satan, the devil, is very, very real. And you know the Bible talks about that very, very clearly. So we need to understand that and ask ourselves, am I a conquered Christian that I will do whatever God says? Obviously, you need to check up and know that it is what God says directly or in principle. But whatever it is, you're going to do it. You have no more argument left, no more fight left, no more reasoning, no more yes buts in your attitude left. You're going to say, yes, Lord, and really do it. Can Christ count on you? Jesus Christ is the living head of the church. If I were to ask Mr. John Aguin if he were still alive, would you move to South Africa? I know he'd say yes. He always said whatever I ask him to do. Would you move to India? Would you move here or there? Many of our ministers have that attitude. I had to have that attitude. I was sent overseas a number of times. Even when my wife was pregnant, we'd sometimes have to sell our house at a loss, move here, move there. We did that. One of my dearest friends, still alive, Mr. Burke McNair, mentioned years ago that he'd had to move 22 times. And he lost money nearly every time. And it hurt him, but he moved and he moved and God blessed him. And so many of our ministers did do those things, helping build the work of God at that time. God looks down from heaven and he sees this people and most of you people have endured you stayed with us many years. You've, many of you have been in Worldwide before, and now you're in the living church of God, and you have been faithful. But think through what I'm saying. The tests and the trials that are coming down the line are going to get worse. They're going to be more severe because we are near the end, and Satan is coming down like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he will try to come after you. And after me and every one of us and get at us in whatever way he can. And we want to really understand that. And we must overcome that and try to get rid of the self and try to say our lives are God's lives. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. I know that we talk about that at baptism. Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to give your life to God? And everyone says, yes, yes, yes. But then trials come along and then people have forgotten that. And they don't really mean that because then they want their own way in quite a number of ways often. You look back at Philippians, if you turn there with me, to Philippians chapter 3, or chapter 2, I'm sorry. Philippians 2, Paul points out a very outstanding young Christian. And we have many young people here, and I hope all of you are listening you're going to have an opportunity in years to come because all of you or many of you are getting right up into your, you know, late teens and early 20s or early 30s. And some of you are going to have to be in more important positions in this very work before it's all over. Some of you may have to finish the job, and I hope you will. I hope you have the understanding and the faith and the courage 
to do that and to go all out even unto death. And I mean that. I'm not trying to be scary. I'm just saying this is the way it is. But Paul was talking here in Philippians chapter 2 about some problems they had. And he said in verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now, I taught the epistles of Paul class for about 30 years, and when you read Paul's letters, this is kind of an unusual statement. He's talking about the leadership here. He's not just talking just about people. He knew that a lot of the ministers and elders even sought their own. Paul says, I don't have anyone like him. And very few of our ministers and elders have that kind of totally conquered attitudes who will say, yes, if I can serve here, that's where I will go. That's what I want to do. My life is not mine. It is God's life. It's His life. It does not belong to me anymore. All seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know His proven character that as a son with His Father, He served with me in the gospel. Timothy went all around with Paul. He saw Paul being stoned. He saw Paul being beaten up. He saw Paul's face or body become covered with blood. I'm sure quite a number of times he may have heard screams from Paul and from the other men being beaten up, whipped over and over and over again and thrown into jail. He saw that, but he went right on. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. They were talking on the radio this morning about, I hear the radio news and not necessarily TV news in the Sabbath, but about these men coming back and our heroes of the, from uh, Iraq are now arriving back in the United States and others from, uh, from Afghanistan. And they're trying to honor them in certain ways, and which is fine for what they did. But a lot of them have missing eyes and ears and hair arm is blown off and you see pictures of them we're crippled for life they have fought for this nation america the beautiful god bless america and we do think america is beautiful and we're grateful for what god has given us here but brethren we are fighting for a kingdom which is eternal we are fighting for a kingdom which is going to come to this earth that great rock which is going to crush all the rocks all the kingdoms of this world and it shall last forever Nothing is as important as that ultimate government of God to bring genuine peace on this earth. And we are the representatives of that kingdom, and we are fighting a spirit warfare. And we're going to lose arms and legs, spiritually speaking at least. Some of us will do it physically, perhaps, as many of the early Christians did. We've got to get real. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just saying, think about it. How much are you committed to Almighty God in that way? Are you conquered by God? So it's hard to give up the self. But Timothy apparently was one to be willing to do that. I remember one fellow evangelist out in Pasadena years ago. I won't give his name. But he had a big job in a big corner office. And after some of us, several of us, were being put down because we had joined Mr. Armstrong and taken care of a very serious situation. And then this man who was the guilty one came back and began to pick off every one of us from our jobs and I was sent away. This other man, instead of being sent away, was brought down from a big corner office. 
in the Hall of Administration to a lower floor to a smaller office. How terrible. He had a smaller office, a beautiful office with a beautiful view of the campus, but it was a smaller office, and he was given a lesser job. He had his same wife. He had his same children. Frankly, he kept his same nice college house with a big swimming pool, much better than about 99% of all human beings on the earth. He said, I can't take this. Can't take what? What can't you take? You're living in the United States of America and you have a nice home and plenty to eat and all these blessings and you can't take it because you're temporarily put down for some reason or another. Wow. This happened to quite a number of the men in the work that I have known. Don't ever turn aside. Get rid of the self. Learn to become a conquered Christian that says my life is God's life. If I'm temporarily put down or my job has changed or I have a smaller office or a smaller salary or a smaller title, so what? It hurts. I had it happen to me. I may never have told you this publicly, but after I was put down and brought back from Hawaii and, and put an editorial, and they didn't even let me have an office there, any kind of office. I just had to work out of my home. But they had this great big editorial meeting, and the one sitting in that meeting with the big editorial and whole media department, they must have 30 to 60 people there. And, of course, they all knew who I was. They knew I was there. And I'm sure some of them wondered, what's he going to do and what's happened to him and all that, because I had been the teacher of most of them, because I had the opportunity to teach more ambassador students than any other human being. But they had this big organizational chart, and at the top was Mr. Tkach, and then under him was, uh, I guess, uh, Mike Fazell, and then it went down to Ron Kelly, who was over uh, various things, I guess, editorial as a whole, and then under someone else and someone else and someone else, and then it had some boxes, then down under those boxes, and at the very bottom, more boxes, and then out to the end of one uh, limb, so to speak, the last limb on the tree, wait out to the end of that limb was my name. <laughs> and they were kind of looking at me. And I thought, they're, uh, they're watching to see my attitude. So I looked at my notes and I just tried to show I had a poker face. They didn't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I didn't appreciate it, but I thought this too shall pass. I knew that this too shall pass. And it did. And many of those men have no jobs in any kind of religious work at all. And some of them who were ministers who went along with that left the truth entirely, are not any part of any church of God. And others have been part of the sinking ship, which the worldwide church of God became after these other men took over. And then they've even changed the name. I think they call it Grace Communion or something like that. They've changed the name. They didn't want the name Mr. Armstrong gave it. And they've tried to stamp out everything Mr. Armstrong built. Jim can tell you in greater detail than I can. But all over the campus, because he lived out there, they've had little signs and things that reminded people of Mr. Armstrong. And they've gotten rid of all of it. They're wanting to stamp out totally the name of the one who built the work of God in modern times more than any other human being. So that's their attitude, and we know they're not going to be blessed for that. 
So we have to learn to go through trials and tests. We've got to be humble, genuinely humble, and say, I will do whatever God tells me to do, even through his human government. It may not always be popular at the time. It might hurt at the time. But if it's within God's law, God sets up kings and takes down kings, and he sets up ministers or evangelists and takes them down. I've seen that. He works it out. He rebukes and chases every son he loves. He's in charge over all. Who is the head of the church? Some people say, well, you're the head of the church. I always try to correct them if they put it that way. Most of you know the answer, of course. Christ is the head of the church. Christ can remove me while, right while I'm sitting here. He could cause me to have a big heart attack and I'd be gone. I hope he doesn't do that to prove his point <laughs> that I'm human. <laughs> but anyway, most of you realize that. The longer I've lived, the more I really fully understand that, brethren. It's real. The God we serve is real. And we've got to get real. And we've got to become really conquered Christians to honestly want to do what we're told to do as long as within God's word and will, not breaking God's laws, and be willing to be part of the team. Christ is developing a team. He wants a loyal team. He wants a team he can trust. If he puts you out on Alpha Centauri or further out planet Pluto or one of these great unnamed planets or whole galaxies they're discovering out there, They say now they're not just more planets, but even more galaxies than human beings. And some of us may be given a whole galaxy. It's exciting what God has in mind. God wants to know where you stand. He wants to know where you stand, and He wants to know where you stand, and He wants to know where I stand. So He's going to keep testing us and testing us to see if you and I are really conquered Christians that our self-will has been basically conquered. I say basically, it won't be perfectly conquered until we're spirits. You know, we know that. No one is perfect yet. So I hope we have figured that out. I'm sure you all have. Let's turn to James now, if you would, uh, the uh, book of James and here and turn to chapter uh, 3 here of the book of James. Let me get some of this tea. In James chapter 3, James has some very practical uh, Christian living principles through this entire book. It's not like Paul's writings. It's sort of a different flavor. James was Jesus Christ's little brother. His big brother was God, Emmanuel. It's hard to think about that. I thought about what if my big brother were God, and I'd seen that perfect example all day long, even when I played even when we threw snowballs at each other, it would be totally in fun. We would never get ourselves upset. We would not try to throw a ball, snowball right in the face of someone because there might be a piece of ice in it or would hurt his eye. But yet we would be human. And I'm sure Christ wrestled with his brothers. I'm sure he had fun with them and all kinds of things. But a perfect, totally right attitude. Wow, what an example James must have been. But God used him to write this book. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In meekness, trying to honestly do what is best. But if you have bitter envy, if people are jealous of one another, trying to fight political battles against each other, 
bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart. That was what was the matter with this evangelist years ago and several others like that in Worldwide who eventually turned on Mr. Armstrong. Some of them directly tried to overthrow him as this man did and so on. Bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart and do not boast and be against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above but is earthly, sensual, demonic for where envy, do you envy others in the church? Here are these two men up here, Mike DeSimone and Mr. Crespo, we just ordained as deacons. And some might say, well, why did I get to be a deacon? Wow, we ought to make everybody a deacon, right? <laughs> everybody could be happy. Well, we try to ordain the ones that have been serving and giving the most that aren't ordained yet. There's another young man, I won't mention him, but was in the list that was presented in our luncheon meeting. And I said, well, let's not make him a deacon because we're already working with him toward the ministry. Sometimes we don't make people a deacon first and then make them an elder. They're just maybe better cut out just to go directly toward the ministry. Not that they wouldn't be willing to be deacons first, but I was not a deacon first. And Mr. Ames was not a deacon first. And Mr. Winnell or Mr. Armstrong was not a deacon first. It depends on your situation in the work, you know, and how your, how your life is guided. So you've got to be willing to serve wherever you are. And if someone has made a deacon first, don't get jealous of it. That's horrible. Maybe God is preparing you for a much higher job. And he's preparing all of us for a much higher job. As you know, you ladies and you young people, we're going to be kings and priests over whole areas of the earth much more than a deacon or deaconess. And yet in the church, it's okay to have offices and we should try to put the ones there that have the time and the energy and the capacity to do some of these jobs a little better at that particular time and situation. And we should. I want to digress. I digress too much sometimes, but some of you older people have told me it's very helpful. Years ago, one of the most dedicated men in the whole church was named Bill Homburger, and he was just a deacon. He had been a peanut farmer like President Jimmy Carter, but he was not from Georgia. He was from Texas. And he sold his peanut farm. He'd been hearing this man, Herbert W. Armstrong, night after night over XCG, where my uncle first heard him and got me interested back in the 1940s. So he sold his farm, sold his everything virtually, except his clothes and came out to Pasadena to help Mr. Armstrong. Bill finally got to be ordained a deacon, but he'd been serving as a deacon for years. He served all over the college, helping and building and serving with no salary. And finally, after six or nine years, someone said, Bill Humberger's running out of money. And Mr. Armstrong was astonished. I was right there. I could see it. He kind of went, what? I hadn't thought about that. Bill is running out of money. He was letting the church, he let me help tear up his pickup truck. And Herman Hay and Ken Herman, we all drove his pickup truck. You know, you get a whole bunch of young men driving your pickup truck. We weren't all perfect drivers. I'm sure we helped wear it out sooner than he would have done. And he just gave of himself. He had this one room on the second floor of the library building. He was a handyman. And then he would have people come in. Men would come if they were single men and had no place to stay. He'd just take them in. And he'd sleep on the floor sometimes and let them sleep in his bed. He gave and gave and gave and gave. He never was ordained anything more than a, than a, a, a deacon. 
because he only had his sixth grade education. He had missing teeth. His teeth were not clean. He hadn't taken care of them growing up. He didn't have a good vocabulary, but he had his heart as big as all outdoors. He gave and gave of himself. And one time us evangelists were talking, three or four of us, I remember including Herman Hay and one or two others, and we said, you know, in the resurrection, Bill Hamburger may well have a bigger job than any of us. And we met it. We met it. And he may well do that. In fact, I know he will better than some of them because some of them dropped clear away. I won't mention the names of the ones who dropped clear away. But he stayed. And he died, finally, in his bed. He leaned back one afternoon in this garage apartment just behind Mr. Armstrong's house. Some of you have seen that. And he had the little apartment over the garage. And he was found lying on, on his back. He had just, I've learned to do, and Monica kind of knows that now. I lie on my back and put a handkerchief over my face and take my afternoon nap. And uh, then she'll bang on the outside of the door and wake me up so I don't sleep too long. <laughs> but anyway, Bill was having his nap, and he had behind him on his little study table the driver's manual. He'd been setting his driver's manual to get his driver's license renewed. A sunny afternoon, taking his nap, he went to sleep. He never had to suffer. He was just 66 years old, but he lived a wonderful 66 years giving and helping and serving. So that's something that I hope I can do with the talents God has given me. God has given me more opportunity because I came to college at age 19. Bill didn't have that chance. He didn't have that chance. Some of you not had that chance. But if each of you does the best you can wherever you are to give your life to God, to give your time, your talents, yes, your money, your energy, your love and serving attitude toward others in the work of God and in the church of God to the full extent of your ability, He will bless you and bless you now and forever. You know that, most of you. You wouldn't be here. That's our God. He's real. And those things will happen. Bill Hamburger will have a very great reward. So he tells us not to have that kind of selfish attitude of self-seeking and so on. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above, verse 17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, not this is what I want and I'm going to get it or else. That's what some of these guys said that left the church. They had that self-will, self-will, not self-seeking, but willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. For you pretend to be loving and yet you're some other way or whatever it is. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And all of us should certainly try to make peace with one another and with all men, of course, to the full extent that we can. That's what God wants us to do. Our kingdom, our coming city or state or whole planet later on ought to be a planet of love and joy and peace. That's what what God wants us to have, of course. So we've got to be willing to think that way and yet be willing to go through trials and tests along the way and never give up, never quit at all uh, for any reason whatsoever. 
in Acts chapter 6, if you turn to Acts chapter 8, I mean, Acts chapter 8, brethren, notice here, beginning in verse 1, what was happening. And I'm going to even appeal to you young people especially to read this. And I'm glad we do have a number of young people here. Many of these people were younger back then. Even Paul or Saul was probably a good deal younger. And he took this young man, Timothy, and trained him and worked with him. So it shows how Stephen, a young man in verse 59 of chapter 7, was stoned to death, crying out to Christ. Is it wrong to worship Christ? No. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Those were his last words. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Was this life a failure? You'd say, I'd like to live a lot longer. Well, probably, maybe Stephen would like to live a lot longer. But frankly, Stephen is a lot better than those other guys in Worldwide and maybe some of our members who've dropped away and won't even be in the first resurrection at all. He's going to be there in great honor. You know that, the way it's described here in the Bible. Chapter 8, now Saul, who became the apostle Paul later, he was very zealous but he was zealous in the wrong way. He did not understand. He was consenting to Stephen's death. He held their cloak, you know, on their clothes while they were throwing rocks at Stephen's head. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Samaria except the apostles. A huge persecution. They were beaten up. Many of them were lashed with whips and so on, thrown into jail. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I know we're living in a safe land thus far, but if you folks read the newspapers and see the evening news on television, as I do, we're not living in a very safe world. It is getting worse every single month. So I don't want this terrible stuff to sneak up on you and it suddenly hits you and you go, oh, I can't take this. Well, I hope you'll think ahead of time what's going to happen and decide in advance, I am going to give my life to God no matter what. I am going to be a conquered Christian. I am going to be in the first resurrection. I am going to be a king or priest in the kingdom of God to the full extent of God's will. I am going to give my life to God and I mean it. No holds barred. So these men and women, men and women as well, were dragged off to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That's where you young people come in. In years to come, some of you may have to witness to or even conduct campaigns or do this or that in a different way than we're doing now. We can't put everybody on television but some of you are going to have a part directly in this work right here. Others of you may be scattered through persecution Others will move to other cities and states and be part of the church that's harassed or split up, and you're going to have to be helping your community and helping every way you can to get out the message. You've got to be filled with zeal and want to have an impact on this world while you have life and breath. They went out everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip, who obviously was a young man. He and Stephen were both ordained, and everything indicates as young men. He went down, nothing ever mentions about their family. He went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Was that a sin? 
Some in our churches, you know, have said, have left us because we're talking about Christ. Wow, how terrible. (laughs) That's all they do talk about in the book of Acts. Read it. He preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So God backed these things up with miracle, for unclean spirits came out with a loud voice, and many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. It sent a thrill of excitement through God's people. And brethren, as we follow through, we had the opportunity to fast this past Sabbath. And let's not let that be, well, that's something gone and forgotten. Let's keep that attitude in our mind. Our church has recently fasted. Let's pray to God. Father, please remember our fast. Please keep us in that attitude. Please help us to get even closer to God. Please help us to build even more faith and courage. Let us be committed Christians more deeply than we have ever been. Because we are a fasting church. We're a praying church. We're a church that really wants to go all the way. We don't want to go halfway. We want to go all the way. We're the living church of God, not the dead church of God. And we want to be sure that we exemplify that. And God will bless us forever if we do. So they went out preaching everywhere. So I hope you, as these events develop over the next several years, and I don't mean one year, it's got to take three to five or six for these things to start to happen big time. It probably will begin to happen, many of them. Within a few years, I hope you young people will use your youthful strength, your energy, your idealism, and your courage to help join us in this great crusade to get this message to the whole world. You will have opportunity if you pray to God to use you. He will give you an opportunity to serve. He gave many of us in the early years of Ambassador College that opportunity And I've told you before about the baptizing tours that we went out on. We didn't go out to try to talk people into baptism. We literally turned them down half the time. We only baptized about one half of those people we counseled. Many of them were not ready. I remember some great big important, self-important guy driving a great big Cadillac in Texas had a bunch of oil wells and he came puffing his cigarettes and brought his wife and we baptized her because she was really sincere and stayed in the church. And later her son came in the church. My wife knows who I'm talking about. I won't identify it more than that. But at any rate, we I, I was leading the tour and I said, well, Mr. Jones, his name was not Jones. I said, we don't want to baptize you at this time. We want you to read these booklets and study and get ready. He said, what do you mean I'm not ready? I sent Herbert $50,000 in this last year. And he had sent him about that much, a lot of money. We checked up later, and that was worth a lot of money then. He was a wealthy man driving a big Cadillac. But I didn't baptize him. And in those days, they didn't have the Internet. A telegram really got your attention. Some of you older people remember. They would send a telegram for something important. This man sent a telegram off. Rod Meredith and Raymond Manair, Burke Manair, whoever it was, wouldn't baptize me. And you remember Mr. Armstrong, or he called him Herbert to us, how much money you check up, how much money I've given you during this past year. And I came back from the tour. At the end of the tour, he didn't try to call me. And uh, he did ask me about it. He said, what was the circumstance? And I explained it. 
And he kind of chuckled. He says, well, you did the right thing, Rod. He says, I don't care if he's a billionaire, whatever he is. We can't give eternal life. Only God can give eternal life. And he obviously was smoking and a little cussing and, uh, and very carnal. We could not dunk him under the water in the name of Jesus Christ. We, we would have been dunking him. That's all we would have been doing. <laughs> but he wasn't repentant. So you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. You've got to give your life to God. But at any rate, he wasn't ready to be a conquered Christian. But on those tours, brethren, we had all kinds of opportunities to help people, to serve them. I was inspired because during those tours as a young 21, 22, 23-year-old young man, on the three summers I went out in a row on baptizing tours, some of the people I baptized, in fact, most of them are old enough to be my parents or grandparents. And often they would have tears in their eyes when we left. They knew they would probably never again in this life see someone from Mr. Armstrong. At least that's what they thought. All we had is the Church of God was a local church in Portland, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and Pasadena. No church east of the West Coast, so to speak. Not one. Later, some of us began to raise up churches, but that didn't happen back in 1951 or even in 52, except in San Diego, I raised up the church there. So they knew they might not live long enough to see someone. They just had to believe that they were giving their life to God and carrying on. It was inspiring to us. I was fired up with the zeal that those people had, but also others hated us because Mr. Armstrong was on the radio six or seven times a night. And he'd start right out this as Herbert W. Armstrong bringing you the good the, the prophecies of today's news and the, and the good news of tomorrow's world or the world tomorrow, I should say he'd say. And he did that in a powerful way. And sometimes the very next sentence, some of you older folks remember, he'd say, why aren't all these churches preaching the truth? You remember that, Mr. Link? He'd start right off. He wasn't bashful. Wow, he'd hit the preachers right away. And he did it maybe too soon, but he did do it. He wasn't afraid and showing how they were wrong. And and some, boy, they were mad at us. And so we had guns pointed at us. And one little guy pointed this 22 right at my head and said, you get out of here. And I said, we're just here to talk to your wife and we will just, you know, and, and no hurting. He said, no, you get. And I still didn't get. And so he then pointed the gun right at my head and he cocked it. And we decided to leave. <laughs> so I didn't try to jump at him and hurt him. Uh, he might have got the bullet off first. But we had those things happen several times. I don't mean once, but several times. And we've told you at times how one man tried to beat up on me at one point, And then another man tried to beat up on Ted Armstrong and me. And he took boards and was hitting us with old boards and, and with uh, uh, chairs and so on. And finally, uh, it was Ted's turn to drive, so I had you get the car ready, and he knew what I meant. We'd both seen Hollywood movies, so he got the car backed around and gunning like that. He gave me the man's back of his hand, and we were both, I was holding his back of his hands, and he was jumping around, calling us all these wonderful names, you know. We had a very good vocabulary, and I was, and he was cussing, and then I gave him a shove and ran toward the car, and he did just what we were afraid he would do. He got a rock, but luckily the rock just hit on the, uh, uh, the uh, aluminum, uh, whatever it is, decorative piece, and didn't hurt the paint as such. But we gunned off down the road, and I'd been shouting to his wife, who was crying, 
Call Ken Swisher at Big Sandy. Get the Big Sandy rector. They'll tell you. Call Ken Swisher at Big Sandy. He can baptize you. Later we found she did. She got a bus up to Big Sandy, and she was baptized up there. So that worked out. But he wanted to beat us up really badly. And we had a lot of exciting times. We weren't killed, though, and God protected us. We could have been shot on three or four different occasions, but God did not allow that to happen. But later on, God may allow some to die. And I can't say he won't. He allowed Stephen to die. And Stephen may have been far more dedicated than I am. He may have been far more dedicated than any of us here. He was willing to die. And the last words off his mouth, out of his mouth, Lord Jesus, forgive them. Just like Jesus said, they know not what they do, Jesus said. So we have to be committed totally and be sure that we are conquered Christians. Turn now, if you would, back to Genesis chapter 22, brethren. Genesis 22 And I want to uh, give here one of the most, of course, classic, and most of you know it, and yet magnificent examples in the Bible. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. In the New King James, the wording is that way, tested God has been testing me and testing me and testing me through my life. And he's testing you in various ways through various situations. You're put down. You're harassed. You're fired from a job. You're threatened physically or other ways. And many of you will go through tests. Sometimes your child is about to die. And you've got to decide, will you put your trust in God? Certainly you need to do certain things, but you still have to be aware God is there sometimes. So he said, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your only son Isaac, go over to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. He knew that Abraham had cried out for years, the Bible indicates, for his own son. He did have this son through Hagar, the maid, you know. But he wanted his own son, and finally he had his own real legitimate son through Sarah. So Abraham arose early. Abraham said, yeah, well, but this is too much, God. This is too much. No, he did not. He did not. Now, I'm not saying to you that if any of us tells you to go and sacrifice your son, you should immediately do that, by the way. Something this serious... You'd better be sure comes directly from God. One of our leaders kind of gave an example like this one time, and I explained to him how this came directly from God. And I said, well, I'm over the ministry, which I was at the point. If I tell George Jones here, you go commit adultery with this other man's wife, should he do it because I'm his boss? And uh, everyone looked funny, so it never came up again. (laughs) They got the picture. No, you don't follow something directly against God's law. You don't do that. I'm talking about administrative decisions, you know, other things like that within God's law. If something serious comes along to where you are going to hurt someone or kill someone or break God's direct law, you'd better be sure it comes directly from God. I don't think my son Jim will be frightened at this because I think you heard me say this when you were a little boy. I've said it a number of times. If God had said years ago, 
uh, when Jim was growing up, well, uh, Rod or Rod Meredith or Mr. Meredith, he wouldn't call me Mr. He'd just probably say, Roderick Meredith, go kill your son Jim when Jim was lying in his little bed in his bedroom. Would I have immediately gone to do that? No. If a voice had come, I should say, I'd say, well, whose voice is this? And I want to see the sun go backward like Isaiah asked for a sign. <laughs> I'd better be sure something like this is from God. You see what I mean? So don't assume things of that sort. I don't. But Abraham had walked and talked with this personality for decades. He knew this was the personality of the great God who put the sun, the moon, and the stars up in the sky. He wasn't in doubt about that. And so he got up early the next morning. He said, yes, sir, I'm not going to wait ten weeks and think about it. He went early the next morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men and Isaac, and they went off to the place. And when they got there, you know the story. At the last minute, he started to kill Isaac. He had the knife already, and often these uh, pictures like he had Isaac like this or something. But, of course, probably Isaac was lying on his stomach. I would imagine just like a, a lamb. And he lifted his chin gently to just quickly slit the throat so the blood would gush out quickly. And before he could make that wrist movement with that sharp knife, did Abraham know how to use a knife? Of course he did. He'd been slaying animals all his life in those days. That's what they did. He knew what he was about to do. God said, stop. Don't touch the lad. And suddenly he found an animal over here, a ram in a thicket. And God told him and guided him to take that animal and not his son. And then God said and appeared to him, the messenger of the Lord, who is really the one who became Jesus Christ, verse 11, and called to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the ladder. Do anything to him, for now I know. And you've heard me say that way before, probably. Can God say that about you or me? Now I know. I'm not in doubt anymore. I've tested you. I've tested you. I've tested you. Now I know that you fear God. You have an awesome awareness, a deep humility, an awareness and a, a fervent attitude of being willing to do whatever God says, since you have not withheld from me, your son, your only son. And then, of course, he appeared to him a second time because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son. Verse 17, verse 17, in blessing I will bless you and multiplying I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven as the sand on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And God gave us the gate. And over later on in chapter 24, verse 60, the plural is used, the gates of our enemies. We have possessed the biggest gates in modern times about international commerce and warfare, which were very important gates. Land gates have never been important in modern times, and air gates were unheard of. It's been the sea gates. God took away the Panama Canal from us. God took away, of course, the Suez Canal from Great Britain and the Bab el-Mandeb, the southern entrance to the Red Sea, and the Straits of Malacca and the Strait of Hormuz, and the tip around South Africa, the Simonson's base. And all those great gates are gone except two. Only two are left, as I've said, Gibraltar 
and the Falkland Islands. Listen, young people, some of you may still doubt. I know that. Watch your newspapers. Listen to TV. You're going to see that within the next several years and maybe even a year or two, one of those gates will probably be taken away. There are only two left. Mr. Armstrong never said they would all go, but I'm just telling you, chances are at least one of them will go soon. Mr. Hernandez, who's right down in Central America now, with Dr. Manel, told us the other day in the lunch, Mr. League, I think, was heard it. He said he's been down recently to South, South America and Bahia Blanca, where Borman landed in a submarine off the shore there. And he said all over the city center are these big signs. The Malvinas are ours. They call the Falkland Islands the Malvinas. It's not some little thing down there. They're getting up a, a big campaign to get rid of the British, get rid of the British. And most of you don't read as much as I do. You're busy and you don't have the time or the money. <clears throat> but I have people sending me stuff from all over. And they're talking about how the Falkland Islands cannot be defended by Britain anymore. We helped them in the Falkland War when Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister and President Reagan and her were very close, and he secretly sent a submarine down to kind of warn off certain other people who wanted to intervene. And the word got out. They weren't officially backing them, but unofficially we were. And other things happened, and they were able to retake the Falklands. But they already have gutted their Navy and their Air Force. They can't do it anymore. The Falklands may disappear. Gibraltar may disappear. Watch. You young people, again, we're not talking about sweet Jesus sentimental stuff we're talking about reality major cities and major nations all over this earth and this church and this church alone get this only those churches who've been taught those things by god's servant mr armstrong understand that no other churches understand that but it's happening it's happening god is real and we've got to get real and give our lives to God and be truly conquered Christians before the end. So I hope all of us can really feel that way and want to do it with all of our hearts. Turn back to Luke chapter 22 now, if you would. The Gospel of Luke. And let's begin reading here in Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. Here Christ was getting ready to be crucified. And coming out, verse 39, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you not enter temptation. And brethren, you've got to pray every day. Please help me, Father. Help me to have a right spirit, a right attitude, a surrendered spirit, and to become a conquered Christian. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, cried out to God, saying, Father, if it is your will, if it's any way, if it's any way, he knew what was going to happen. He'd seen men writhing in agony up and down these byways. They had the Romans crucified many people all over. It was one of the most slow, agonizing, painful, horrible deaths ever invented, lasting for hours. If there's any other way, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Christ set the perfect example. I hope all of us can come to that place. And brethren, if we are conquered Christians, if we really mean it, 
we consider God's, that our life is God's life. We have been conquered by God. We belong to Him. There's no question we will obey Him. We will be conquered Christians. And that's a wonderful thing and we'll be blessed. But also this church, if we become a church filled with conquered Christians, you know it, we will have more power. We will have more supernatural healings. We will have more thrills of God Almighty intervening miraculously. And the work of God will wait, go out with greater power than ever before. And we will have a greater eternal reward in the kingdom of God and the family of God as God works with us teaching us, training us, fashioning us, and molding us day by day and year by year to make us His full sons in His kingdom and in His family forever.